Welcome back to another episode of Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Johnny Foster. Today I speak with author Robert Geek, who has his eighth book publishing with us, entitled New England Citizen Soldiers of the American Revolution, which will be available to purchase on October 21st. Well, Robert, thank you for joining us. All right, thank you. Look forward to it. So, Robert, with your books, with this book and your other titles uh, you've written for us, you can see a strong interest in your local history and colonial history in New England. And have you always had that interest? I have. You know, I grew up uh, uh, here in Rhode Island, where I live, where I live now, and um, was fortunate enough to have a good stretch of woods to wander in as a boy. And uh, that was really when I first began to wonder, you know, you, you're wandering through woods and you're coming across stone walls that have been there for generations and you're seeing remnants of farm, farm uh, outbuildings and so forth. And you get a curiosity about what was there before you and, and how they lived. And that I've always, always had that since uh, my first recollections of walking through the woods as a boy. Did you ever stumble across anything from the colonial era or the past when you're with your walks through the woods that interested you? Um, I would find cemeteries, you know, occasionally, of course, the farmlands that, that have now become woods, you'll, you will find occasional uh, family plots and that's what happened with me. And so I kind of could read the history of a family there just on the stones that were there. And, uh, you know, of course, other times you'd come across parts of foundations or even a even occasionally, you know, pieces of metal that had to do with some farm equipment or something like that. Um, so I was always exploring the woods, both my brother Bill and I. Uh, we we were happy to do that as kids, and, and we continued that into our adulthood. Oh, yeah, absolutely. People don't realize how important and how much of a story you can get from especially the slate gravestones or grave markers. Uh, even the imagery, the funerary art imagery, with the skull with the wings, which shows the soul ascending is what mm-hmm. that means, and the skull represents the body that is dead. Uh, it's and then you have the list of you know they're the daughter to so and so, and they were you know they were a pastor or they were a merchant, all right there on that mm-hmm. stone for you to read. That's right. That's I was in in uh, talking with people who ask advice about uh, how to uh, you know write histories and how to how to begin a history of a family in particular. Of course, now everybody is is uh, familiar with Ancestry.com, which is a wonderful tool. But uh, for me, I started out, and others did as well. That's the first place you went was the, was the family plot, if you knew where that was. And you wrote down all the names and all the dates, and then went back into the town hall and into the uh, offices to find out the history. And... Um, yeah, you know, that's that's pretty much still what I do. I guess I could call myself old school in that regard. It's pretty much what I would still do, you know, um, of even even after that, and then just kind of back it up with looking up in the research as well. And, you know, if once you start doing that, people don't realize it's almost like, for lack of a better description, almost like a drug, because it, it becomes very addictive when you start researching your family history. It does, you know, and people, people uh, often are, you know, they feel, of course, are, our historical societies and so forth are mostly filled with people doing genealogical work, you know, uh, because that's a, uh, I think that's a primal instinct to know more about your past, to know about 
your family's history. And um, that's something that's uh, people worry about losing that now because everything is now online, you know, and everything is data and, you know, encrypted and you. Uh, and of course, that doesn't last forever. You know, it's not the same as a piece of paper, you know, uh, and going back into a historical society or into your town halls and, and getting that document or a copy of that document of birth certificates, death certificates, marriage certificates, all of that brings a, a real tangible meaning uh, from your family into your own hands. And, and I think that's a, an attraction that people will always have. I think so, too. And I encourage anyone who's listening to go out and try it because we're focusing, you know, at our company in Arcadia Publishing the History Press on local history. You don't get much more local than the story of your family in a town. That's right. Yeah. And that's something that I try to do in my books. Um, I've always, over the years, I've always been interested in the local stories of of, uh, families, of family uh, histories. And, you know, especially in this this book that's coming out, uh, Citizen Soldiers, um, there hadn't really been a really uh, good book about the average uh, enlistee into the militias and the Continental Army. Uh, since Robert Gross's wonderful book about Minutemen. And uh, I wanted to kind of uh, uh, do a little bit of work about that. And in, this, in the book itself, there are, there are lots of stories about uh, men who uh, enlisted from uh, poor families in particular. And, you know, many men enlisted to, uh, you know, find get a job basically because they were either an apprentice or they were uh, struggling to uh, to work in the early New England. Uh, even by 1775, you know, there were pockets of New England that were very poor and uh, had economic difficulties. Yeah, and, you know, also people don't really know that much about the militia. Uh, Robert, I actually do historical reenactments uh, in uniform with the Charlestown Battalion of Artillery, which wasn't regular army, but were men who right, were yeah. able to uh-huh. you know, buy uniforms and uh, dress up. It was more of the gentlemen who were in the Charlestown Battalion of Artillery. But you know, you still have those uniforms, mm-hmm. and you'll have people reenacting you know, along with us who are in what would appear to be regular clothes, and people are wondering why that is, and it's because they're representing the militia. And the only movie I can really think of that people know the militia from, and there was a lot of, obviously a lot of inaccuracies and amalgamations of characters, but The Patriot showed the movie mm-hmm. with Mel Gibson, it showed the militia. Uh, why do you think we do not know so much about the militia? In North or South. Well, it's you're 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 very you're very right, Johnny. Because you know, in 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 your case, you're dressing up in the uniform that was uh, that was adapted by your own uh, your own unit, and this was the case throughout throughout the colonies. Each militia unit had their own uniform, and it's very very interesting because here in Rhode Island, uh, the the uh, smock or the hunting smock of the long mm-hmm. hunters, the riflemen of uh, Pennsylvania and Maryland were adapted by the Rhode Island uh, 2nd Regiment because they had met each other in Boston. And uh, that became their uniform for the course of most of the war. And a lot of people don't realize, and even reenactors especially, I've noticed here in the North, uh, they all tend to wear the blue the blue coats, you know, the, the uh, overcoats that the Army later issued. But in fact, there was not a uniform ordered uh, a standard uniform for the order for the army the continental army ordered until 1777 after the very harsh winter of 1776 to 1777 
And that even had to be ordered from France because the the uh, president of the Continental Congress, Patrick Lee Henry, could not Henry Lee Patrick Henry Lee could not find a an appropriate American clothier, and so he wrote to Paris and asked that they uh, fit out a, a complete uniform for forty thousand soldiers, and asked, uh, which I found quite amusing, that that they be generally of stouter fit than those of the men of France. You know, so <laughs> he uh, he was basically uh, had to go to France to get these uniforms. And in fact, some units, the Rhode Island Regiment, for instance, did not get their uniform, which was a splendid white, beautifully uh, white dress uniform until 1781. So there were other others that had the same effect where they they wore their own uniforms through the course of the war. Uh, people who were in militia, of course, the militia had to be. Uh, part of uh, continental campaigns as well from anywhere from a month to six months. Uh, that was part of their uh, contract with the continental army, so to speak. And so all of these different militia units would show up in these different uniforms and take part in uh, battles and in campaigns throughout the war. And so they are very, very distinct and, and they still to this day, as I'm sure your regiment does, take great pride in the uniform that they chose for themselves. And um, it's a remarkable story, but people do believe, you know, uh, because because of the history books in school, I think, and the generalized history of the American Revolution that is presented and has been presented for some time now, they all picture the blue coats and the tricorn hats and and the breeches and and so forth. And it was a very different type of look that uh, comprised the American army at that time. Yeah, and depending on how long your uniform has been on your person, it might be falling apart, as we know happened as well. That's right. Yeah, those were often uh, that was often the case, especially if you're in the harsh conditions of uh, marching through the woods and uh, sometimes uh, having to sleep uh, on the cold ground because uh, you, there's no place to really pitch your tent. You know that happened as well. So yeah, clothing got worn out. It was it was an almost constant problem. Uh, for the soldiers, you know, Joseph Plum Martin, of course, uh, wrote uh, famously about the uh, the blood in the snow from the men of feet who who's, who were who's bleeding because their shoes had worn out, and that was true. That was very very true of, of uh, many of the campaigns in the winter and the men who were ill fed and and underclothed for much of the war. I want to go back a little bit before the Revolutionary War, and I want to talk about the colonial militia in New England. Uh, in the colonial times before mm-hmm. the revolution happened. Uh, can you give us a little bit of a rundown of the history and why a militia was important? Sure, well, well the, the militia were important for the defense of the towns, and initially uh, one of the first things that happened after a town was established was that uh, a militia would be formed. And this was based on the British model of the citizen soldier, meaning that pretty much anyone who was capable from the age of 16 to 60 were required to gather at uh, at certain times and to muster and to learn military exercise uh, for the defense of the community. And uh, this led, of course, on to... Uh, uh, to larger groups of people, and and for many men in the community, if you were especially if you were from a poor background, entering the militia was a way forward in the community, a way to greater standing in your community. Uh, once you had the um, once you had the rank of captain, uh, you were called captain the rest of your life, 
And so many of these men who uh, joined militias initially and would later fight in the Indian Wars remained very uh, heroic figures in their own communities. Uh, they would march in parades after the wars. They would wear the uniform at ceremonies. And uh, they became the embodiment of these uh, wars to many in their community. And that was true later of the Revolutionary War, of course, as well, and of those veterans. Did they have to supply their own firelocks or muskets, powder, each individual, each individual yes. militia member? Yes, they did. You know, the... the um, the general rule was that you 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 uh, supplied your own gun, and so uh, when you had to go to muster, if you did not have a weapon, you might borrow one from a neighbor, you might borrow one from an uncle, uh, or something like that, and and show up for muster. Um, and then when the Revolutionary War came, of course, uh, we began to see a greater production of muskets, and uh, certain individuals and communities would take advantage of the need for the muskets, and uh, and and produce them for the for the remainder of the war uh, for those militia units or for those uh, units that were in the Continental Army from their home state. Yeah, and speaking of the Continental Army, what is the difference between militia units or in regulars or troops of the colonial line? Well, you know, the, America, the Americans did not have a standing army, and actually we didn't have a standing army until the 20th century. And so the militia was the backbone of the Continental Army. When the call came on the alarm, as they call it, from Lexington after the after the skirmish at Lexington, and uh, troops were gathered in Boston, all of those troops were from the militia units of the various states that had gathered, and so those were initially the men who became part of the Continental Army. Those men who had stayed behind because for uh, reasons that they were either too infirm to uh, act as regular soldiers, or they had some uh, physical uh, infirmity or physical um, you know, problem where they could not uh, be listed as a regular soldier, those men they be- then became part of the militias who were left behind. And so initially you had a great deal of enthusiasm, of course, as you usually do when a war breaks out, uh, patriotism and, and enthusiasm for going to war uh, to earn your liberty. And uh, many landowners initially enlisted and many of the men uh, who had been militia members for many time, a long time, uh, were the first men who became part of the Continental Army. But after 1777, um, and when raids had had uh, debilitated towns and and destroyed communities in Connecticut and Rhode Island and elsewhere, um, many of those landowners uh, who had lost property or who had seen property confiscated or destroyed by British troops uh, raiding. Uh, communities decided that they had had enough and re- returned back to their homes to protect their their homeland, and thus the Continental Army changed to uh, a point of having a draft, uh, where that if a community could not uh, fill the quota that was required uh, in their state, they would have a town meeting, and they would put names in a hat, and the distinguished citizen of the town that everyone could trust would pick names out of the hat for men who were going then to enlist in the Continental Army. Um, and then you had, of course, uh, among those militia uh, that remained, um, the men who were initially able to join the Army were then admitted into the Army. Uh, blacks, for the first time, were admitted into the Continental Line, where they had been excluded before until 1778. And uh, it became an amalgamation of people 
of uh, from various backgrounds, both uh, a lot of Scottish and English, uh, Scottish and uh, German immigrants fought for American side as well. And uh, a lot of poor, as I was saying before, a lot of poor people uh, also enlisted uh, because they chiefly needed needed three meals a day to get it. And, you know, and that sense of adventure was gone and was more of a sense of desperation among the American troops and especially among the American leaders who worried that uh, that this caliber of people were not going to be able to sustain the army. But lo and behold, they surprised everyone. And in fact, uh, it was that amalgamation of men uh, who who would eventually defeat the British. You know, and we do, you know, we, we've established in really great detail. And this is, a, you know, one of my f- passions is the Revolutionary War. And that's why I'm really thankful to be able to talk to you today because I saw your book and I thought, I have to talk to Robert. I have to do a podcast with him. But the militia is the backbone of the original colonial or the Continental Army. But, you know, even, you know, yes. from northern history to southern history, you can see, like, generals such as Daniel Morgan, Nathaniel Green, they knew how to use the militia, but they weren't exactly friends of those or fans of those who were basically just strictly militia here for six months until it's time to go do work on the family farm uh, back home. Oh, yes. You know, Nathaniel Green especially was uh, always pressing for, you know, for a regular army. And and he wrote he wrote very emphatically one time that you know uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here of course but basically he was saying you can't expect men who have come from a farm uh, to steal to be able to steal themselves so quickly so that they're stepping over the bodies of men and going into battle yes. and so that they seeing they're seeing the suffering and the wounded you know you can't expect those men to steal themselves so quickly and become you know firm. Uh, regular troops. Yeah, I think he and changed so his, his mind on that after the Battle of Utah Springs. Well, yes, of course. You know that, the militia there played such a pivotal role uh, that he, that he would, and he also had a great deal of respect for the militia in New England because he knew that they trained well and they were well disciplined. And that was not always the case uh, throughout the colonies, but um, he was a he he did come around, and actually, all of even Washington believed in the end that the the uh there should not be a standing army uh and that was a that was a an idea that stayed on with us even through the civil war when militias were again called into action as i as i said it wasn't until the 20th century that we um that we established a, the formation of a standing army uh that would be needed in times of war and so the militia in the minds of people in their community were the real heroes of the revolution and I think that's uh, rightly so to a large extent. And uh, that's what I wanted to highlight in my book. So with, with a militia in New England, and I know just you know from learning history, you're going to have towns who are going to lose a great many number of men. Uh, were there towns that had their male population just almost, well, not decimated, but casualties, either wounded or uh, killed in action? Well, yes, that happened in in several cases, but I'll I'll give you an example of of the struggle for some communities to meet the quotas. What would happen is that once the once the draft was instituted by the Continental Congress in 1777, uh the states each had to come up with a certain quota of men. That was, you know, requested before and now it was demanded that you have to have this number of men 
enlist in the Continental Army. Some communities, for instance, such as Wittensville, Massachusetts, only had 40 families in the community. You know, so they didn't have enough money. They ended up paying bounties to to uh, men from other communities to help them fill their quota. You know, so as you can imagine, uh, when they did lose men, it was a good deal of the community that they lost. Of the, you know, if it was even ten men, that's you know, that's almost a third of your population. And so, there's many, uh, there's many people, there's many people uh, that uh, did go in and. Uh, whole families would be lost, and that's highlighted in the book as well. In some instances, um, there even in the local militia skirmishes, uh, there was a there was a young man that's highlighted in a book named uh, Simeon Leet, uh, whose family owned an island off the shore of Guilford, Connecticut. Um, not only did this family undergo some hardships with the loss of uh, disease uh, by disease uh, through their family. But later, the brothers and Simeon himself was also killed defending the island uh, during a British raid. So whether you were in a campaign uh, in the field or you were in the homeland and and defending your home and your property there, uh, it happened quite often that that many families would lose, um, you know, half of half of the sons in their family or or more. Um, And of course, you know, this would later be. amplified to a greater level even during the civil war uh, and i believe actually from another podcast that's why we don't have when say a group of friends sign up at the same you know army uh office to be enlisted into the army and listen from the same office they will send them to different units and things of nature so you don't have mm-hmm. a large number of men coming from the same hometown going to the same area right Right, and uh, one of the one of the interesting things to me is that um, both the militia, uh, as far as the militia that had to stay home, I'll, I'll give you one more story. Do we have time for that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I'll tell you about Prudence Wright. Now, Prudence Wright's husband had answered the alarm after Lexington and gone to Boston, as did all the men of Peppermill, uh, Pepperell, Massachusetts, and. Um, what they did was, uh, while the men were gone, uh, this uh, individual, Prudence Wright, determined to uh, form a female militia. And so she formed an all-female militia of 30 to 40 women um, who would wear their husband's clothing and carry around fowling pieces, which were uh, guns for hunting, uh, guns for hunting uh, fowling game, and uh, pitchforks, everything from fowling pieces to pitchforks on, while they were on patrol. And they were actually credited with uh, capturing a, a British Army officer named Leonard uh, Whiting, who had uh, tried to cross the Dewar Bridge and come into town to meet with some British sympathizers. So there's all great stories like that uh, throughout the communities in New England that I wanted to highlight. Uh, you know, and I tried to find out uh, accuracy, the accuracy of some of them, because we all hear legends and, and tales, and some of them were published over the years that uh, were a little embellished, but uh, I'm a stickler for accuracy. So I find a really good story and I find out it's accurate. I'm really excited. And that was one that I found. The town actually uh, 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 put forward a petition uh, uh, commending the women in 1777 for their actions. So That's incredible, especially for that time period. Uh, let me ask you this. Is there a, what's the difference between a rifle company 
and the militia that would be formed up in a line. Uh, did the riflemen do something different than those, say, with just they muskets? They absolutely did. The, yes, the riflemen were highly skilled woodsmen. And so the rifle brigades that were um, that were put together from Pennsylvania, Maryland, and uh, some of the southern some of the southern colonies as well. Um, Daniel Morgan, you know, uh, mm-hmm. was uh, you know one of the chief uh, uh, riflemen, leaders of the riflemen, and so uh, he was actually asked to put together a rifleman brigade uh, several times during the course of the war, and they would take men from different units uh, who had. Uh, he he was very. Um, he had a high standard, uh, especially for marksmanship. And that was important because the riflemen were the men who reconnoitered uh, certain areas uh, before the troops came in. Uh, the riflemen had long rifles, much more accurate uh, than the muskets that the regular uh, men of the Continental Line were given. And so the riflemen would reconnoitre an area. They would also take part in battles. And in battles, they would climb up into the trees and basically um, um, act as snipers, uh, picking off British officers who were generally on horseback during the battle, and uh, then try and cause uh, confusion and panic among the troops. And this was very, very effective. Washington was always highly pleased with their uh, performance, and uh, they were used in many ways. And one of my chapters, in fact, is on the Rifleman Brigade in in the book because they did have such an impact on the war. And they really changed the history of the way that uh, our armaments were, were uh, made as well and the way that uh, different units could be made like that, rather than just having uh, the traditional uh, uh, militia units become uh, customary soldiers. Uh, Washington and others recognized the, uh, the accuracy of the, mar- of the marksmanship of the riflemen and used that to full advantage as much as they could. Tell me if this statement is true. From the beginning, even before Lexington and Concord, practicing and mustering with the militia to Yorktown and beyond, because we know there were still battles going on until 1782 and skirmishes. Right. New England militia was there the entire time. Yes. And that's a pretty yes. proud history to have. That's a big part of American history. It is. It is one of, in particular, you know, one of our units in the Rhode Island uh, Regiment uh, led led one of the charges at Yorktown to uh, take the readout. So we're very, very proud of uh, our history. Um, and as as with uh, your uh, regiment of uh, reenactors, we have some very proud reenactors here: uh, Carl Becker and uh, David Cunningham, a, a black man uh, who. Uh, was uh, one of the first to educate people about the quote-unquote black regiment of the Continental Line. Uh, and they've been doing that for you know nearly 30 years, informing people about the uh, important historical status of the regiment, uh, showing up for reenactments and, and going to schools and, and teaching people. And I'm actually part of that regiment now. I'm very proud to be part of that regiment and, uh, and uh, proud to represent those uh, the Rhode Island Regiment. Uh, which was one of the regiments I wrote about in the previous book. That's that's incredible. It is it's it's neat to be able to reenact like we do, and just see people kind of get it in a different way than they normally would have from just reading from a book or somebody's making a watch a documentary. When they get to come out and see living history, it reaches them on a whole different level. Absolutely, you know, and I think that uh, 
again, you know, as, as uh, far as uh, it's important to me because I, I think of myself as a boy and, and uh, my reactions to living history reenactments and, and uh, things like that that brought me closer and brought the material uh, reality of uh, what it was like, you know, to live in a tent, to, to cook on a fire and to, you know, be out there in the elements, you know, for uh, weeks at a time. Uh, during a campaign, I think that uh, is an important lesson for uh, for kids to learn, especially kids today who are used to seeing. You know, if they play a if they play a battle video, you know, video game, it's all from the perspective of playing in a video game. You know, and it's not a it's not reality uh, at all. You know, so I think that for kids to come out and see that as part of uh, learning history is an important element of that. Absolutely, and it's thanks for writing this book about what we would, what would would been normal men doing amazing things, and normal and women doing amazing things too. I yes, really yes. enjoyed the book, and I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, it's a great pleasure of mine to be able to do these podcasts with our authors, and uh, thank you for your time, Robert. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Remember to visit your local bookstore for our local history books. If your store does not carry our titles, ask them to. You can also browse our titles online at ArcadiaPublishing.com.